Well, take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to Acts chapter 17, as well as 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Looking first to Acts 17, I want to highlight the commending words of the Berean believers recorded for us in verses 10 through 12. Acts 17, beginning in verse 10. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These, speaking of those attending the synagogue in Berea, these were more noble, meaning they were more open-minded to the biblical truths being preached by Paul and Silas. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word. Speaking of the preached word, they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. Now, I want you to note the two commendable characteristics mentioned of the Bereans. First, verse 11 expresses that they received the word of God attentively and respectfully. And the phrase readiness of mind suggests that they were open-minded and eager to hear the truths that Paul was expounding to them. And what a great blessing this is to a preacher. When a preacher has hearers who are happily interested in listening to him as opposed to those who fold their arms, stare him down, and stubbornly resist what is being taught. It makes all the difference in the world. These Bereans sat at the feet of Paul and Silas and desired to listen to them preach. They did not. The Bereans did not attend the gathered meetings looking to argue, looking to debate, or looking to resist the apostolic message. They came to hear and learn. And that is the first commendable characteristic mention of the Bereans. The second commendable characteristic mention of the Bereans, listed in verse 11, is the reality that after hearing the preached word of Paul and Silas, the Bereans seriously and carefully examined what God's messengers said by the truths of God's word. Verse 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. And this verse teaches us that the Bereans only believed what was preached if they found it to be in full agreement with what God has said in Scripture. And I love this because it drives both the preacher and the hearer to submit themselves to one objective truth. And by way of application, this means that a preacher 
cannot come to the pulpit and say, I have a message from the Lord and start speaking whatever nonsense he wants to preach. And on the flip side, this means that the hearers are not to naively accept everything that is said by the preacher because the preacher or teacher claims to be of God or has graduated from a Bible college and seems to be knowledgeable about Bible truth. You see, these Bereans did not believe what was being said because the great... Apostle Paul, who is the well-known, intelligent, successful apostle, said it. No. They believed what was being said because they were persuaded that it, being the preaching of God's Word, agreed with God's Word. They believed it not because it was the doctrine of Paul... They believed it because it was the doctrine of God. And I would have you notice that Paul was completely okay with this practice. He wasn't offended by it. He didn't discourage it. Paul didn't huff and puff angrily saying, Why are you going back to your Bibles? Don't you trust me? Don't you know who I am? How dare you disbelieve my message? How dare you question my authority? Paul was content with letting Scripture be the final authority for faith and practice, not only in regards to his life, but for everyone else's life. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and they searched the scriptures daily to see if what they were hearing was true. Now, if you will, turn over with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Looking to the words of 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we read, Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when ye received the word of God which ye have heard of us. Ye received it. Not as the word of men. But as it is in truth. The word of God. Which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Now, notice what is said. Paul says that these believers received the truths articulated by Paul, not as doctrines fabricated by men, but as truths which originated from God himself. As Paul ministered the word of God among them, they gladly welcomed it into their hearts, being fully convinced by the Spirit that what he said were not his words, but God's words. All right, we have that as our foundation. The Berean believers, they were Bible believers. God's word was their final authority. And now we have the Thessalonian church receiving the words of God from Paul, not as the words of Paul, 
but as they are in truth, the Word of God. Over the last five weeks, I've been preaching truths from the Word of God that emphasize God's amazing, sovereign grace in the work of salvation. In my first sermon from Romans 3, I asked and answered the question, how can sinful men save himself? And the conclusion was, he can't. Romans 3 clearly articulates the fact that man cannot save himself because he is spiritually dead and unable to come to God apart from the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. In my second sermon from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, I asked and answered the question, is salvation conditional? And the obvious answer from Scripture was no. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The Bible makes it crystal clear that salvation, the salvation that God gives to sinners through the person and work of Jesus Christ, is not based on anything that man is or man does. It's all of grace. In my third sermon from John 10, I asked and answered the question, did Jesus die to make sinful men savable, or did he die to accomplish the Father's mission to have a people for himself? And we heard from the words of Jesus himself in John 10 that he died in accordance to God's will to successfully save his sheep. Meaning then that Jesus' death on the cross was not a potential payment for sin, but an actual payment for sin. Likewise, we noted that Jesus, the Good Shepherd, bore the sins of His people. Teaching us that Jesus knowingly bore the sins of and died in the place for particular people who were known by Him even before they were born, yea, even before the foundation of the world. In my fourth sermon from John 10, I asked and answered the question, is God's saving grace triumphant? Again, we saw from the words of Jesus, the Good Shepherd, that the decisive answer is an authoritative yes. God cannot fail in His mission to save His sheep. Scripture concludes that the sheep for whom Jesus died, will hear Jesus' voice. They will follow Him, and there will be one full. And then in my fifth sermon from John 10, I asked and answered the question, does Jesus, the Good Shepherd, preserve His sheep? Does He preserve His people? And looking to the words in John 10, as well as John 17, we concluded from Scripture that all of Jesus' sheep will persevere in the faith because they are preserved by His grace. Remember, 1 Peter 1 tells us, we are kept by the power of God. Paul, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 tells us that what God starts in the soul of a man, He finishes. The one who calls is the one who keeps. Now, from what I could observe from behind the pulpit as I preached these five distinctive truths to you, and from what most of you have told me throughout your personal feedback outside the pulpit after my preaching, it seems that most, if not all of you, believe, whether or not you fully understand them, you believe that these truths are biblical truths. 
It seems most of you have been encouraged and comforted by these truths to some extent. And furthermore, it seems that you're persuaded that these truths honor and glorify the person and work of Jesus Christ, and they magnify the fact that God is sovereign over all. If my discernment indicator is working properly, it seems that you are taking comfort in the fact that God's promises are true, which means that God's will has been done, God's will is being done, and God's will will be done, and that Jesus Christ is a triumphant Savior. And the one thing I'm hearing out of the lips of many of you is the humbling thought that you recognize that you are what you are in Christ solely and wholly by the grace of God. And several of you have echoed that truth, that question, why me? Why would God choose to love me? And that's the thing that Paul constantly thought about. Why? Why me, the persecutor of the church? Why me, the sinner of all sinners? So Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, I've said all that to say, I have a confession to make. And it's a confession I've been planning to make from the beginning. What I have been preaching to you these last five weeks have been traditionally referred to as the doctrines of grace, Calvinism, Reformed theology, which have been expressed throughout the years in the acronym popularly known as TULIP, also known as the five points of Calvinism. Now, how many of you knew that? How many of you are surprised by that? How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about? How many of you think I should be tied up, tarred, and feathers stoned to death for what I did? Well, if you are surprised by what I just said, I want to tell you that your surprise stems from the fact that over the last five weeks, I have never once quoted the writings of men. I've never once quoted the writings of any theologian. I've never once tried to confuse you with terms, titles, names, or theological camps. All I have done over the last five weeks is expound the truths of God's Word in the most simplistic way I know how. And I did this for two reasons. First, so that you will come to understand and accept the truths of Scripture as they are given to us in Scripture, because Scripture is God's perfect and authoritative Word. The second reason I have purposely stayed away from using specific well-known terms, titles, names, and theological camps is because I have found that sometimes terms, titles, names, theological camps, and systems become misunderstood, and often, over the course of time, they become misrepresented and misapplied. All right, so now the question becomes, Pastor, why attach Bible truths to specific terms and systems now? Well, here's my answer. I want to label things for you so that you will know what things are, so that you might be honest 
wise, discerning, humble, and gracious in your perception of Christianity, both past and present, and with your interactions with others. Listen, unfortunately, over the last several decades, among the greater sphere of Christendom, many, many misconceptions and many blatant lies have been foolishly articulated and accepted regarding the truths of God's amazing grace and salvation. And I'm going to just be honest and tell you, I cannot and I will not stand back and let blatant lies, whether intentional or unintentional, deceive the congregation that God has appointed me to shepherd. Listen, church, if I'm going to be a faithful minister of Jesus Christ, if I'm going to build your trust as a pastor, if we are going to be a people, a church that makes an impact in our society, then I firmly believe that we must, we must, we must be a people who operate in humility and honesty in all things. If we are going to represent our Savior as we ought, if others are going to trust us with Bible truths, then we must be a people who speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, whether we agree with things or not. And the fact of the matter is, in regards to, quote, Calvinism, as it pertains to the doctrines of grace that I've been preaching to you, many pastors and preachers mistakenly lump Calvinism and hyper-Calvinism as one. Many pastors and preachers want to pretend that these truths have never been believed or preached by God-fearing, spirit-filled preachers in past years. Inaccurately, many Christians view, quote, Calvinists as evil cult members, which sadly leads to brothers and sisters in the Lord breaking fellowship one from another. And they break fellowship to a degree in which anyone who believes in God's complete sovereignty is worthy of separating from. Now, I say all this to say there is a difference between Calvinism and hyper-Calvinism. And I say all this to say that biblical Calvinism used to be believed, preached, and delighted in by many God-fearing men that we deem as heroes of the faith. To name a handful, the King James Translators, the Puritans, John Bunyan, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, John Newton, the author of God's Amazing Grace. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. Jonathan Edwards. George Whitfield, two preachers who were used mightily by God to bring about revivals in our nation. William Carey, the great missionary to India who waited seven years before he saw his first convert. These are men who are among a whole army of men who firmly believe the truths that I've been preaching these men have referred to themselves as Calvinists. Now, you don't have to like these particular men. You don't have to agree with their teachings 100%, but you do. Listen, you do have to accept the fact that these men believed what they believed and they were used of God to advance Christ's kingdom in their own unique way. These are men 
who were mightily used of the Lord. These are men who were bold, courageous preachers who were used of God to see tens and thousands come to faith in Christ. And so we need to acknowledge that. Because history is history, whether you like it or not. And we need to stay consistent in our thinking through these things. Now, with the rest of the time that we have, I want to compare and contrast the basic notions of hyper-Calvinism with what I'm calling biblical historical Calvinism. Again, so that you will know what is what, so that you will operate in the realm of truth, so that you can converse with others honestly about how things are, I want to explain the difference between Calvinism, what I've been teaching over the last several weeks, and hyper-Calvinism, that which we ought to shun because it is extreme and unbiblical. So take the knife. If in your mind you thought all these things were one, take the knife and cut it in half. They're not one, they're two. And they're distinctly two different points of beliefs. So let's look at our first point. The basic notions of hyper-Calvinism. What is hyper-Calvinism? Well, hyper-Calvinism is the extreme and unbiblical view that asserts that God saves His elect through His sovereign will without the help of His people. In short, hyper-Calvinism overemphasizes God's sovereignty and underemphasizes man's responsibility in the work of salvation. For instance, a hyper-Calvinist will argue, if God has His elect ones, if God has purpose to save whom He will, then there is no reason to pray for others. There's no reason to evangelize. There's no reason to plead with others to look to Jesus Christ and be saved because you don't know who the elect are. And all the elect are going to be saved anyways. So it's a hopeless giving of your time, your money, your effort to reach people with the gospel. You see, hyper-Calvinism operates in a dead, cold, fatalistic sphere that believes Whatever happens will happen, so I'm going to sit back and hope that I'm one of God's elect. I'm not sure if I am. No one can be sure of that. But if I am, I'm safe, which means I can live however I want. And if I'm not, well, likewise, I guess I can live however I want. And often attached to the false notion of hyper-Calvinism is that poisonous doctrine of antinomianism, the belief that we are not under the law, we are under grace, therefore we can live like worldlings. We can love the world and love Jesus because we are safe in Him. We're going to heaven. And there is a new breed, a new brand. There is a new opinion. There's always new opinions, new labels, new groups. And this is the, of the opinion of what's called new Calvinist, this worldly Christianity, this worldly sphere that claims Calvinism but lives so loosely, so wickedly, even among the church. That's hyper-Calvinism in a nutshell. 
No burden for lost souls. No pleading with God for lost family members, friends, neighbors to be saved. No focus on evangelism. No urging sinners to believe on Christ and the preaching of God's word. Because if God has ordained the end from the beginning, what's the point? And often when you walk into a hyper-Calvinist church, it is literally dead. The Spirit's dead. The preaching's dead. It's all intellectual arguments. There's no pressing of the heart and the conscience because we're all in this fatalistic bubble. And sometimes hyper-Calvinists can portray God as some unloving tyrant who takes great delight in sending people to hell. Sometimes hyper-Calvinism wrongly overemphasizes God's justice and wrath and underemphasizes God's love, mercy, grace, and long-suffering with sinners. While God is a judge, and He is not afraid to judge for sin, He will judge. He's a holy God. He's a righteous God. But God is not in heaven taking great delight in seeing sinners go to hell. My Bible says God delights in mercy. He delights in grace in showing love to others. So in short, those are the basic notions of hyper-Calvinism. They've taken some of the truths of God's Word, but they've made it unbiblically extreme. They've taken God's sovereignty and they've placed aside man's responsibility. Man's responsibility to pray, to evangelize, to give to evangelism, to believe on the Lord, to repent of sin, and so basically sees man as a robot. Biblical, historical Calvinism, on the other hand, strives to maintain a biblical balance between God's sovereign election and man's undeniable responsibility before God. Did you catch what I said? Biblical, historical Calvinism takes hand in hand the truth that God is sovereign over all. His will will be done. He does have an elect people. They will be saved. But it never denies the fact that man must believe to be saved. He must look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if he dies in his sins, it's because he did not believe on Christ. Biblical historical Calvinism is what I've been preaching to you over the last five weeks, yea, the last seven years as your pastor. Biblical historical Calvinism believes that election, predestination, Foreknowledge are Bible words and Bible terms and refers to the believer's salvation. Biblical, historical Calvinism believes that Jesus, the good shepherd, laid down his life for his sheep. John 10. Biblical, historical Calvinism believes that no man can come to Christ. John 6. Unless the Father draw him. Biblical, historical Calvinism believes that man is spiritually dead and will never see God apart from God's regenerating power. Biblical historical Calvinism believes that salvation is not based on merit or good works, but rests solely and wholly on God's sovereign unmerited grace, while at the same time affirming that lost sinners must believe the gospel in order to be saved, and Christians have an obligation to be zealously involved 
in reaching others for Christ. We believe in the Great Commission. We believe Jesus has called us to be lights in this world. We believe that Paul's words are true in which he calls us ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. True biblical Calvinism embraces the fact that God is a God of appointed means. This is a distinctive point here. This means that while God is sovereign over all, His will will ultimately be accomplished. But God has appointed that His will will be accomplished through His people praying, evangelizing, and striving after holiness. You see, true biblical historical Calvinism does not cut off that means. It accepts the means through which God works. Biblical historical Calvinism believes that holiness is an evidence of election. If you are not growing in Christ-likeness, it is an indication that you are not a true believer. And that opposes this new fashion of new Calvinism that says we believe these electing truths, but you can live worldly at the same time. No, you can't. You can't. Because the God who saves is the God who sanctifies The God who calls you to himself is the God who is making you more Christ-like. Biblical historical Calvinism says with Paul in 2 Timothy 2.10, I do what I do for Christ, speaking enduring affliction and trouble, I do what I do for the elect's sake, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. Paul went preaching the gospel throughout the whole world, knowing that Christ's sheep will believe. Christ's sheep will find the shepherd because the shepherd is finding his sheep. Biblical historical Calvinism does not see God's election as a deterrence to evangelism, but God's success in evangelism. Remember Acts chapter 18, Paul in Corinth, he's discouraged. Many are opposing him in Corinth, this wicked, perverse, ungodly, pagan city. Jesus comes to Paul in a vision by night and says, Paul, don't give up. Keep preaching. Why? Because I have much people in the city. Paul was given success in his evangelistic efforts. Your mission cannot fail, Paul. Why? Because my sheep are in this city. As you preach the word of God, they will be saved. So we pray, we preach, we plead. Because God has promised through these means... His sheep will believe on his name. So there is, in a nutshell, the basic notions of biblical historical Calvinism as opposed to the flawed teachings of hyper-Calvinism. One is biblical and balanced. The other is unbiblical and unbalanced and extreme. Having given you the distinctions of the two, I want to close with some pastoral exhortations, some personal applications about the topic of election, predestination, foreknowledge, Calvinism that we've been studying over the past five weeks. Four points of pastoral exhortations and personal applications. These are so vital. Point number one be honest. Be honest. And some point, be honest with the Scriptures. 
By this I mean when you come to a text that speaks of election, predestination, foreknowledge, God's calling, God's remnant, don't pretend that it's not there. It is. So embrace it. Don't skip over it. Don't try to pretend that God did not place it in His preserved Word. Don't read through all of these words. John 3.16 and 2 Peter 3. Take the whole of what God says in His Word and believe it. Acts 13.48 says, As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Now, is that a hard concept for some? Well, yes. Wait a second. There are an ordained people? Well, that's what the text says. As many as were ordained, chosen, elected, to eternal life believed, as Paul was preaching. It's not flip-flop. It doesn't say as many as believed were ordained. No. God made a choice before man made his choice. Can we fully comprehend it? We can fully comprehend it. But there it is, clear as day, in the Word of God, we need to accept it as Bible truth. John 10, 26, Jesus says, The reason that some do not believe on Him rests in the fact that they are unbelievers because they are not His sheep. That's what Jesus says. You believe not because you are not My sheep. Hard to understand? Sure. But that's word-for-word Bible. So I implore you, when you come to hard texts like this, you can't just take a Sharpie and mark it out and pretend it's not there. You can't take a scissors. I mean, I suppose you could, but you'll be in trouble with God. You need to be honest with Scripture. Search it out. God has it there for a reason. He's not imbalanced. There's a reason, there's a purpose these words are there. So figure it out. Be honest with the Scriptures. Too many dishonest people today. Be honest with the Scriptures. Subpoint two, be honest with history. If I've heard it once, I've heard it dozens of times from the lips of liars who know better as well as unlearned zealots. I've heard many preachers say, quote, Calvinistic truths have never been believed in our Baptist circles. Calvinistic truths deaden the church and kill evangelistic efforts. Charles Spurgeon was not a Calvinist because he was a soul winner. Lie, 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 lie. Calvinistic truths used to be widely held by Baptists. Calvinistic truths have always been the fuel that inflames evangelistic efforts. And Charles Spurgeon has said in one of his sermons, quote, Calvinism is the gospel. Again, you don't have to like these facts. You don't have to necessarily agree with them, but they are facts of history nonetheless. So I'm asking, be honest with history. Be honest with what men have said, what men have written, and what men have preached. And the third subpoint under this first main point is be honest in recognizing the differences between Calvinism and hyper-Calvinism. Don't lump it all together as one. They are two distinct spheres. 
There is a great gulf of difference between the two. So be honest in recognizing that when somebody says, so-and-so is a Calvinist, are you automatically thinking that they are a brother of Satan? Are you automatically thinking that they are somehow hyper? There is a biblical, historical, evangelistic Calvinism. You need to be careful, ask more questions, search it out. Be honest, be honest. Application number one. Be honest. Application number two. Be humble. Be humble. Now I need to warn you. There does exist a hateful spirit among some people regarding these truths. There are groups of people out there who will mark you as a compromiser and an enemy of the gospel if you do not cross your doctrinal T's and dot your theological I's the same way they do. Sadly, among the domain of Christendom, there are some who will name-call, gossip, slander, break fellowship from, and treat you like a cult member if you are honest with the Scriptures and church history and you strive to be a Berean believer. That's the spirit of pride. What I'm asking you to do is clothe yourself in Christ-like humility. Be humble. This means also if someone calls you, your pastor or our church, a compromiser, a heretic, an enemy of the gospel, do not repay evil for evil. Just remember that when Jesus taught on particular atonement in John 10, the Pharisees called him a demon-possessed man. If you've come to the place in your life where you feel you understand the truths of God's election biblically and in a balanced way, listen, don't get frustrated with or belittle those who are having a difficult time comprehending it all. These are hard truths to wrestle with at times And everyone is on their own spiritual journey in understanding God's Word. So we don't need to take the Bible and smack it across the head of those who don't understand. Be humble. Be humble. For some of us, we kicked against these things strongly until God opened our eyes. For some of us, we were guilty of pointing the finger, calling people heretics for believing these things. And under this point, let me also emphasize the fact that good and godly men have disagreed and continue to disagree regarding the biblical teachings of election. But they're humble. They can remain brothers in Christ knowing that if they preach the gospel of grace, they're on the same team. They're not our enemies. They're our friends and fellow soldiers. So be humble. That's application number two. Application number three. Be a Berean believer. We've already talked about this at the beginning of the sermon. Be a Berean believer. Don't receive truth because it fits into a particular system. Don't receive truth because it's been traditionally accepted by a denomination or church fellowship. Don't receive truth because it is preached by a pastor you like. Well, pastor so-and-so on the radio says it, so I believe it. He can't ever be wrong. 
Well, this author, who I really appreciate, this commentator, he must always be right. Don't believe it, because you have a favorite preacher you like. All men are capable of erring. All men are capable of spewing out untrue things, whether they mean it or not. Only receive truth if you are thoroughly convinced it is Bible. And I'm urging you to do this of my preaching. Don't believe me. Search it out for yourself in the Bible. God forbid that I should ever be a lord over God's heritage and say, don't ever question what I say to you. How dare you question my call to preach? How dare you? There are some, I'm almost going to call them preachers. There are some wolves like that out there. There are some charlatans who will tell you, don't look it up, just believe what I say. That's not Bible. You better search everything by the Word of God. And connected with this is the fourth exhortation and application, which is, be content to be called a Biblicist. Be content to be called a Bible believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. And under this point, I do not deny the fact that titles, names, positions can and do help explain what you mean by things. Listen, I happily embrace the term Baptist. That's a term. It's a title. It's a group. I happily embrace that as opposed to Lutheran or Methodist or Presbyterian, though I have many good Presbyterian friends. I purposely call myself, listen, a born-again Christian. That's a term. It's a title. I call myself that as opposed to simply, quote, Christian, though I am a Christian, to separate myself from the misuse of Christian by Catholics, Mormons, and Jehovah's Witnesses. You see, titles, names, camps are helpful, but only to the extent that we know what we mean. If a Mormon says, are you Christian, what are you going to say? Well, yes, but not your type of Christian. Likewise with Catholics who believe that you have to go to a priest and confess your sins in a confessional booth and you have to pray prayers to Mary's and all these things. Are you Christian? Well, let's define what that means. Because we live in a day where terms and titles don't have any meanings anymore. So we do use terms, titles, names. They are helpful. They do help distinguish who we are. Yet at the same time, we must recognize that terms, names, titles, acronyms, tulips, can be misunderstood and misapplied. So specifically speaking, in regards to believing Calvinistic beliefs, we should not desire that others know that our allegiance is to a man namely John Calvin, but to the God-man, Jesus Christ. We don't follow John Calvin. We don't follow any theologian, for that matter. We are followers of Jesus Christ. Now, if he created a system whereby we can understand the doctrines of salvation, okay, we get it. But pledge your allegiance to Christ and Christ alone. Be content to be called a Biblicist, a Bible believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. I like what Charles Spurgeon and George Whitfield say regarding this point. Spurgeon says, quote, 
There is no soul living who holds more firmly to the doctrines of grace than I do. And if any man asks me whether I am ashamed to be called a Calvinist, I answer, I wish to be called nothing but a Christian. But if you ask me, do I hold the doctrinal views which were held by John Calvin, I reply, I do in the main hold them and rejoice to avow it. Spurgeon also said, quote, I am not an Arminian or a Calvinist. I am a born-again Christian. Let this be our stand. So on the one side, he understood terms, titles, names are helpful. But on the other side, he says, don't lump me into a group. I'm a Christian above all. Preeminently, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. George Whitfield likewise says, quote, What is Calvin? Or what is Luther? Let us look above names and parties. Let Jesus be our all in all, so He is preached. And I like that. I don't want to go into a church where the pastor is constantly quoting Jacob Arminius or John Calvin or any theologian. I want to hear messages about my Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you remember what John the Baptist said in John 3.30 about Christ? He must increase. I must decrease. So that's our motto. That ought to be our cry. More of Christ, less of man. It's not about man. It's about Christ. We follow Him. We believe on Him. Because He is the all-sufficient Savior. Calvinism, hyper-Calvinism. Two distinct groups, but what I've been preaching to you over the last five weeks has been lumped into, traditionally, historical, biblical Calvinism. Next week, Lord willing, I want to look at how do we reconcile seemingly contradictory truths How do we reconcile the truth that God is sovereign and man is responsible? Uh, They they seem to contradict. How does this work? Well, we're going to look at that truth and many other truths in God's Word where the answer is they're both true and we just need to accept it by faith. They're both true. Clear as day. I can preach Ephesians 1. I can preach Romans 9 that you are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. I can preach that from beginning to end, 45-minute sermon. And the next week, I can take God's Word and preach John 3.16 just as authoritatively. I can say, whosoever will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Well, that's contradictory. Maybe in your mind, but not in the mind of God. And you see, Spurgeon was charged by both sides of being something that he was not. The Arminians charged Spurgeon with being hyper-Calvinist. The hyper-Calvinists charged Spurgeon with being an Arminian. So people are going to charge us with whatever, but let's just be true to the Bible.